Thank you for joining us for the lessons from First Naz Podcast. I'm in the book of Ephesians this morning, chapter 6. If you'd like to follow along, I'd love for you to open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. It's going to take me a minute to get there. I spent about eight years in central Washington, a very agrarian community before going to the mission field and then coming here. And so I, I had six years, eight years of hearing about the old farmer. The old farmer is kind of a mythical figure in, in farming communities. The old farmer has wisdom. The old farmer does silly things. The old farmer is the one who goes to the dump and then he comes back with more stuff than he took to the dump. That's, that's the kind of thing the old farmer does. The old farmer, he, um, he, he also has a lot of colloquial wisdom. The old farmer, he'll say, one thing a young farmer should see a lot of in his fields is his own footprints. That's a good, that's a good wisdom, bit of wisdom from the old farmer. The, the old farmer was per, personified for me in, in a particular man in my church there in central Washington. He was an old farmer. And there were a couple of old farmers that had lots of wisdom, but the, this one, one guy in particular, he had raised four daughters on his farm, and they were all grown and out of the house, different parts of the country, actually, at that point. And the old farmer would talk about the different jobs that he had made his girls do. He had only had daughters, so he, his daughters were raised to do all of the work around the farm. And they, one of the jobs that he talked about a lot was cleaning out this spot. They had some green bins on their, on their property, and it had a spot where they dumped the green out of the trucks, and then it would get augered up into the green bins from there. And all the green would come in there, and uh, inevitably, there would be some green that would get stuck. And, and over the course of the year, before harvest, they would have to get down there and clean out all of the nasty old green that had gotten stuck. stuck. And some moisture would get in, and it would, it would start decomposing a little bit. It was stinky and rotting and gross. And, and they called that, that place the pit. And, and every year, somebody had to get down into the pit with a shovel and clean out the pit. And so the wisdom of the old farmer was, he, he always told his girls, every job has a pit. Every job has that thing that you just don't care to do. And so some of you, as you think about your job, you can think, oh yeah, I know exactly what the pit is. It's that, it's that time of year to get down into the pit. Or it's that one, that one thing that I have to do okay, I'll just grit my teeth and, and deal with the job that is the pit. And we all, as, as working people, we all have things in, in our careers and in our, in our working lives that we kind of think of as, oh, it's that time of year again, or it's that thing, it's that task, it's that, that job. As a preacher, I don't have anything that I don't particularly enjoy as, as a pastor. Uh, I enjoy all of the things that uh, pastors are supposed to do. I like visiting with people. I like I, I like preaching on Sunday. Uh, I like going to lunch with people in my congregation. You know, these are great, these are great things. I, if there is a pit of pastoral ministry for me, it's a philosophical one. And I'm never one to over-philosophize uh, about things. Um, so, but the, I do have a philosophical pit of pastoral ministry. Because I've always thought about pastoral ministry as, as being so tied to my faith. 
Like, if it's almost as if my identity as a Christian is wrapped up in my identity as a pastor. And, and to me, that has just seemed unfair. It just seems unfair that my, my identity and my, as a Christian and my vocational identity are just like so, so closely related. And so that's the pit of Christian ministry for me. That's my, that's my complaint is uh, that, that my job and my faith are so, so intertwined. And I thought that that was unique to pastoral ministry, and then I started studying the passage today that I'm, I'm going to be looking at, and I began to believe that maybe all believers in, in a real way have their vocational identity wrapped up in their Christian identity. But that would be getting ahead of myself. So I'm going to take a step back. I'm in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9 today. Paul is continuing to apply the truth of the Christian life in everyday relationships. He has been talking since the beginning of chapter 4, and I started this series way back a long time ago in chapter 4 of Ephesians, talking about Paul, Paul's uh, desire that believers would live a life worthy of the calling that we have been given by God. We are to live a life according to the calling that God has put on our lives, and we're supposed to be, it's, it's a life worthy and Paul unpacks what it means to live a life worthy of that calling throughout chapters 4 and 5, and now we're into chapter 6. In, in the middle of chapter 5, he, he took, um, it, it's, a, it's an important moment. In the middle of chapter 5, he starts talking specifically about what it is to live a wise life. And a wise life is a life filled with the Holy Spirit. A life filled with the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 21 of chapter 5, he, he says, he makes a statement that is, kind of a summary statement of what it is to live a life that pleases God, a life that is wise, a life that is, is exemplary and lives worthily of the calling that we have received as believers. And the, the statement he makes is, submit one to another out of reverence for God. So Paul is telling us we must submit one to another out of reverence for God, and then he begins to apply that standard of submission one to another out of reverence of God to our relationships. And he begins the remainder of chapter 5 then, in uh, Ephesians 5, 22 and on, he applies it to the, the relationship of marriage. And he says, wives submit to your husbands as to Christ, and husbands lay down your lives for your wife like Christ laid down his life for the church. Then at the beginning of chapter 6, last week I had looked at the passage where he applies this to the relationship between children and parents. And he says that children are to obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. And he says, fathers, don't provoke your children, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. This week I'm moving on to the final pairing of relationships that he deals with, and he applies the command Submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. And this command, it doesn't exactly apply to our culture. It doesn't, it doesn't, there's not a one-to-one -one correlation with what Paul is saying here. And so we're going to kind of take bits and pieces of what Paul is talking about here that do apply to our context and our culture. It doesn't apply because Paul is talking about the relationship between slaves and masters. And we don't live in a, in a society that has slavery. And so we're, we're going to take bits and pieces that we can and apply it. In order to get to a place where we can apply this, though, 
I want to give you a little bit of a history lesson. I hope you'll stick with me because it's, it's history. And some people are just like instantly hear that it's history and they go to sleep. And, and so don't, don't go to sleep just yet. It's kind of interesting, the, this history. And so I hope that you'll, I hope you'll stick with me. Paul talks about slaves and masters to the church for a couple of reasons. First, he talks about slaves and masters to the church, to the first century church, because slavery was a really widely practiced social institution in ancient Rome. In the city of Rome, it's estimated that one out of five people were slaves. And then there are estimates that up to a third of the population in, in what is now Italy and Greece were slaves in, in the first century. And so it was, it was a major section of the population that lived in this reality of either being a slave or of owning slaves. And so Paul talked to, to the people, to the church about this. Okay, so this is a little interesting historical tidbit. I read that the, the Roman Senate proposed a law that would require slaves to identify themselves when they were in public, either with a specific type of dress uh, or I, th I think it was like a specific dress that they were supposed to wear, a specific color, actually, that they were supposed to wear. And, and so they, th this law was proposed. The law was struck down in the Roman Senate, though, because there was a fear among the senators that the slaves would begin to realize how many of them there were. And they would realize, oh, you know, we have maybe a little bit more more power than we thought we did. And so, <laughs> in order to keep, keep the peace, the, the Roman Senate decided not to, to make slaves identify themselves. Now, aside from slaves and masters being numerous in that culture, Paul addresses this pairing of relationships because he's dealing with household issues. And, and slaves and masters live together. This is, this is, he talks about husbands and wives, he talks about children and parents, he talks about slaves and masters because there is, there is a familiar relationship. It is, it is like family, the relationship in, in first century Rome between uh, slaves and masters. Slaves did not have the freedom to represent themselves in, in legal matters, and so their, their masters were their representation. They didn't have the freedom of movement. They didn't have freedom of where they'd work. Masters were, were in charge of all of these things, and it was in a lot of ways like a parental relationship because masters were also supposed to provide all of the needs, supply all of the needs, food and housing and clothing and everything that a person needed who was in slavery. Now, much of our understanding of slavery today comes from the practice as it, was, as it was practiced in the 18th and 19th centuries in the U.S., right? That's really what, what our mind thinks about. And, and there, are, there are some significant distinctions between slavery in the 17 and 1800s in the U.S. and slavery in the first century. And, and perhaps the most significant difference is that in the first century, upward mobility was a possibility, upward mobility, the slaves were able to purchase their freedom. And it, that's a, a really a key difference. The price could be arranged in, within the relationship in the household. Many, many slaves were freed at a certain point in, in their relationship with their masters. It was, it was not viewed as a perpetual um, 
state in life for a person. It was viewed as something that would be, if somebody found themselves destitute, they could work as a slave with the idea that progress could be attained, that they could become upwardly mobile. And, and the possibility of upward mobility uh, for slaves in ancient Rome really was a stabilizing force. It really brought a lot of stability to the Roman Empire. It, if, you, if you think about social unrest, all the way up till today, social unrest comes from people who are in a position of feeling oppressed and who have no hope of bettering their situation, who feel like there's no hope of bettering their situation. And so, um, and oppressors don't get to tell other people who's oppressed and who's not. And so the, the oppressed, when they feel there's no hope of bettering their situation, social unrest comes. And so, because slavery had the element of the possibility of, of upward mobility, it continued as a, as a stabilizing force. If you think about innovation and productivity comes as a result of people believing that there will be a reward for their innovation and their productivity. And, and so, uh, because slaves were able to, to reap rewards for their own innovation and their own productivity... It, it, was, it was a more stabilizing force. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul, Paul addresses a lot of family relationships again, a lot of, or a lot of states in life, a lot of, of social institutions. Mostly he talks about marriage, right? He talks about marriage and singleness in, in 1 Corinthians 7. And I've talked about this passage a handful of times in this sermon series. Paul, in the middle of talking about staying in the same state that you were in, if you're, if you're single and you can remain single, remain single, Paul says. If you're married, keep being married. Love one another and stay married. Uh, he, he also addresses slaves in this passage. And I'm just going to read for you 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 20 through 24, which, which addresses uh, slaves in the early church. It says, yes, each of you should remain as you were when God called you. Are you a slave? Don't let that worry you. But if you get a chance to be free, take it. And remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you are now free in the Lord. And if you were free when the Lord called you, you are now a slave of Christ. God paid a high price for you. So don't be enslaved by the world. Each of you, dear brothers and sisters, should remain as you were when God first called you. So Paul's instruction in this passage are mostly about kind of stay, stay in the circumstance in which you were when God called you when, you, when you began your relationship with the Lord. Stay in that circumstance. Don't look to, to get free. It, mostly, though, Paul is saying don't let relationships. He's saying this to married people. He's saying this to single people. Don't let relationships distract you from your first priority. Our first priority is our kingdom of heaven priorities the fact that we belong to Jesus. We can't obsess over anything to the point that it distracts us from our walk with the Lord. And so he says to, the, to slaves, if you have the chance, get free. Don't, don't stay in that state if you have the chance to remove yourself from it. But also, don't let your pursuit of freedom distract you from your first priority. Your first priority being Loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Make sure that that is, is key in your heart. That you are first and foremost belonging to Jesus. 
Now, my priority this morning is not to give you a history lesson. Uh, thank you for letting me. I, I appreciate it. But with that in mind, I want to, to talk about Ephesians 6 and something that's alluded to in, in Ephesians 6 and also in 1 Corinthians 7, which I've read for you, which is this idea that as believers, we belong to Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 23, don't be enslaved to the world. Don't be enslaved to anything other than Jesus. And so I'm, I'm looking at this passage um, that deals with slaves and masters in Ephesians 6. But I really want to highlight the parts that apply, apply to us as best as they can and apply it as best as possible to our current social and economic reality, our social and economic context. Paul, Paul addresses people who, who act as in relationship as employed and employer, as boss and worker, Right? And so I'm, I'm going to use some of the language that Paul, Paul uses as slave. I'm going to apply some of it to us as, as people who are employed by others. And some of the language that Paul uses as master and apply it as best as possible uh, to, to those of us who work as bosses. First century Rome, the, the economy though, is, it just has to be acknowledged. It was different. Like first century Rome just didn't have a growing and stable middle class. Uh, it didn't, it, you know, much of what we experience in, in our world of a stable sort of middle class existence just wasn't a reality in first, first century Rome. The population was very few wealthy and very many very poor and, and not much in between. Rome created an environment, it's kind of interesting to, re, to think about Paul Paul, whose family was not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, but Paul's family were Roman citizens. And so somebody in their family history had purchased citizenship, had improved their own social status, and, and made it to a position of being a Roman citizen. And, and so Paul's story is, is interesting to me, and his history is interesting. In, in first century Rome, the Roman Empire provided more stability and more opportunity for, for upward mobility for poor people than a lot of historical governments around the world. I mean, more than, than governments that currently exist. Uh, remarkably, first century Rome had the possibility of, of upward mobility. But it was always a tenuous situation. It was always a tenuous situation. And, and the reality is that there's nowhere in the New Testament that speaks to us as middle-class Americans. There, there's really not anything that speaks to our economic and work reality. There's just not. It's hard to find anything that would, be, would apply to, to our working lives other than the general principles that apply to how we live our lives day in and day out. And so this is, this is while not directly addressing us, uh, we we can get as close as we can to addressing our personal situation as middle-class people who work, who employ others, who are employed. And so the passage I'm looking at today has, has parts that, that apply to us because it talks about our, our lives as believers, as, as people in relationship with others, people, people who are above us and people who are, are below us in organizational charts. 
So we get to, to this third set of household relationships in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, and I'm going to read the passage for you now from the New Living Translation. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not when you are, uh, not when they, uh, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. So, not all of this passage applies to our context and our culture. I'm going to pick and choose what I believe really really focuses on, on things that we can apply to us today. And I'm going to start midway through verse 6, and I'm going to go from there, basically. Midway through verse 6, Paul, Paul speaks to, to um, people who are slaves of Christ. And, and we all fit that mold. We all fit the mold. We all fit the bill as being slaves to Christ. He, in, in each one of these relational pairings, he starts with the person with less power in the relationship. He started with wives before husbands. Then he talks about children and then uh, parents. Here he speaks to, to those with less power. He tells the people who have less power in their relationship with, with their masters to consider themselves slaves of Christ and do the will of God with all your heart. If we read these, ver- these words in the context of verse 9, in verse 9, Paul talks to masters and he says, we all have the same master. Every person should consider themselves a slave of Christ. Regardless of where you fit on the on the uh, hierarchy and the organizational chart of where you work, you belong to Jesus. And you are a servant of Jesus. It doesn't matter if, if you're the lowest person on the totem pole or if you're way up at the top. You belong to Jesus. Paul says in, in verse 6, talking to, to the lowest, you belong to Jesus. He talks in verse 9 to those at the, at the top, you belong to Jesus. And if we are all slaves on earth to Jesus, it, it doesn't matter our social, social standing or socioeconomic status. If we, have, if we have put our faith in Jesus, we belong to Jesus. All of us, every single one of us. There, there is no Christian person who doesn't live in that reality. And so he says, no matter your socioeconomic status, you are a slave to him. Do the will of God with all your heart. Do the will of God with all your heart. That means that the will of God is the driving force behind everything we do. If it's all of our heart, that means there can't be a little corner of our heart that's doing our own will, right? If, the, if, if we do God's will with everything that we are, it means that we, we can't say, well, I'm going to do God's will at home. But when I go to work, that's, that's my own business. I'm going to do God's will when I'm around my family. But when I'm alone, yeah, I can do my own thing. 
Paul says, with all your heart, do God's will. And the will of God is very diverse, right? The will of God is very diverse. It could, be, it could mean a thousand different things to us. And so Paul tries to give clarity about what he's speaking about when he, he talks about doing the will of God. And, and he gives us the specific context of the will of God in verse 7. In verse 7, he says, work with enthusiasm as if you were working for the Lord rather than for people. God's will for Christians is that we would do everything for the praise of God. That everything we do would be for God's glory and God's honor. That God would receive praise from every action that we take, from everything we do. And so if we translate into this to our world to today, to a person who works for a paycheck, it means that we no longer are working just for a paycheck. We are working so that we can bring glory to God. Our, our purpose in going to work day in and day out is not just to receive a paycheck. Our purpose is to bring glory to God, to bring praise to God by the, by the outstanding way in which we handle ourselves at work, the outstanding way in which we, we do the job that we have to do. Paul comments about slaves doing their best when their masters are looking or not. It means that always, whether, whether there is going to be compensation for it or not, we do our best. We do, we do what is right. This is a matter of character, right? Because our character is revealed when, when our actions line up with what we say is our priority, whether somebody's looking or not. And so, when, when we are bringing glory to God with everything we do, it doesn't matter if, if our boss is looking over our shoulder or not. It doesn't matter if the work is going to get all covered up and nobody's ever going to see it. We still do it for the glory of God. We do our best. We, we work our hardest, not for a higher level of compensation, not for a move up in, in the organizational chart, but because it brings glory to God. We do our best. We work our hardest. We, we give the best effort we can. And, and um, as Christians, we, we recognize that this, is, this, is, this matter of our character, the, the, this means that for some of us, we have to really be willing to, to lay down our, our own ambition, our own, our own desire to, to get ahead, and to do, do the right thing when it's going to be noticed and when it's not going to be noticed. To do the right thing when nobody is going to get, give you kudos and say, hey, great job for, for doing the right thing in that situation. And we recognize that Paul, Paul wants us to please God. And somewhere hidden in this passage and in this idea of, of belonging to, to Christ and to being free uh, is, is the truth that we are free depending on what we make ourselves subject to. Right? Paul, Paul talks about, don't be subject to the world in 1 Corinthians. Be subject to God. We, we can subject ourselves to the opinions of other people. And we are slaves to their opinions until we say, their opinions no longer matter to me. We can subject ourselves for, to the games that our employers might play to try to get more out of us. But if we say, I'm going to do everything I do at work to the glory of God, 
we're not going to be subject to those games any longer. We can be subject to the expectations of, of people around us. But if we say, my first responsibility and, and what I am going to subject myself to is, is God's glory and God receiving glory from me, we'll, we'll no longer be subject to the expectations of the people around us. And so in, in Ephesians uh, 6 8, Paul ends with the instructions, ends his instructions to slaves. Uh, with, um, with his, the reminder of God's ultimate reward. He says, Remember, the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Now, Paul is, is touching on uh, an idea. There's a theme throughout the New Testament, this idea of an ultimate reward, like a final reward for, for believers. And there are some places where it seems like there's almost, in, in Jesus's teaching and in Paul's teaching, occasionally it sounds like there's almost a reward that is above and beyond heaven. Like there's reward to receive in heaven for, for people. Now, I personally, I don't think that there's enough evidence in the New Testament to make a real theology of rewards in heaven. I, I just, I don't see it. Um, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, be glad to be corrected. Uh, I just, I don't see in, in the New Testament a real, a real way to make a theology of that. But, but Paul does talk about the reward that comes to us, that the Lord will reward, re, the Lord will reward, the Lord will reward each of us, uh, and, and we do believe in the ultimate reward, right, of being face-to-face with Jesus. That's the best reward we can have. Our hearts will finally be complete. We will, we will experience what we were created to experience when we are, we are face-to-face with our Savior. That's the ultimate reward, right? And that's the reward that, that we want. That reward comes by putting our faith in Jesus. That's, that, is, that is the reward we work for. Paul says, for those who work diligently, those who do God's will, those who act as if somebody is looking over their shoulder, making sure they're doing their best job, whether somebody's looking over their shoulder or not, there is also reward. And I, I think that it does, that it indicates our character, right? It indicates the truth that we would be transformed by God's spirit in our lives if we're willing to act that way. And we will receive the ultimate reward if we are transformed and if the spirit is working in us, no question. But I think there's also a sense in which the creation functions in, in a way to, to provide good for those who, who work according to God's will, who, who work diligently. Good things come out of, out of being a diligent person and working hard and working for the glory of God in all cir- circumstances. It's over and over again, it's proven that the person with a good work, work ethic, the person who, who is willing to do the right thing, whether people are looking or not, they, they end up receiving God's blessings. They end, up, they end up experiencing just almost unexplainably God's, God's good gifts poured out on them on this, this earth. Let's not confuse comfort with blessing. Uh, but let's remember that God's blessings in this life uh, come to us in a variety of ways. 
And, and it's just remarkable that, that those, those blessings seem to come to those who, who work diligently, who seek first to bring glory and honor to God. Paul, Paul says that all of us, regardless of where we fit in the organizational chart, we all are accountable to God first. And God is, is the one who, who will reward or not. So then in verse 9, Paul deals with masters. And he says, in the same way, you should treat them in the same way. Uh, meaning that masters should work for the glory of God. Uh, meaning that they should be kind and loving and patient and helpful to those who are below them in the organizational chart. He expands his thoughts in the rest of the verse. He says, don't threaten them. Paul would correct any person who is over another, uh, who, who would treat another person as less than human. The, the ugly part of slavery and the, and the part that is, is utterly condemnable in first century Rome is, are the things that are written about slaves, like a slave is a living tool. Uh, Christians would never, never say such a thing about another human being because we always see God's image in the other people around us. And so we... Um, Paul, Paul would correct any Christian person, slave owner or slave, who saw another person as an object, who saw another person as, as only a means to an end. And then at the end of verse 9, Paul, Paul repeats some of these same themes that, that we've already talked about. He says, you, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. God doesn't stop holding people accountable once they get to the top, does he? <laughs> in fact, the New Testament indicates that teachers and leaders are held to a higher standard of accountability by God than, than those who don't attain that position of leadership on earth. And so there, there is nobody who is above God's watchful eye. And Paul reminds all of us who, who find ourselves in the position of receiving service from another— which is actually all of us. We all, in our economy, in our world, we receive service from others. He reminds us that we can never see people who offer us service as anything less than a bearer of God's image, anything less than a child of God who is beloved by our Heavenly Father, just as we are beloved by our Heavenly Father. We, we never see anybody as, as less than us because we always see ourselves as, as a servant to others. And so uh, today, we, we have a lot of motivation to be kind to people who serve us. Like the, you see in several restaurants and stores around these days, the whole world is short-staffed, be kind to those who showed up, right? We're in a position right now in our economy where our ability to shop and to eat at our favorite restaurants depends on people choosing to, to work at those restaurants and those stores. And, and if you drive around very much, you see that pretty much everybody who works in restaurants and stores, they have lots of options. Everybody's hiring. Everybody's looking for workers. And so we have this sort of economic uh, selfish <laughs> motivation these days to be very kind to people who, who work 
in the service industry. Paul would say, don't let your motivation to be kind to the people who serve you be because you want to continue to live in, in the comfort to which you have grown accustomed. Don't let your motivation for, for being kind to your server be because you hope she doesn't quit and you can't eat at that restaurant tomorrow. Let your motivation for being kind be that you see God's image in everyone, that you know you belong to the same master, that you know the same God is, is over you. And so we, we are called by God to treat everyone with love and to submit to everyone and see ourselves as less important than, than the people who are serving us. And so I have just two quick thoughts. We're going to be done early today. My wife's not here telling me to keep preaching, so <laughs> she would never say that. <laughs> I have two quick thoughts before, before we go to prayer, and, and I'll dismiss you. First is to just highlight something I've already said. This passage would warn us that we never, ever, ever as believers, we never, ever see another human being as a means to an end. Employed people, your boss, your supervisor is not a means to you getting a paycheck. Period. As believers. This is the standard for believers, by the way. We don't hold other people to this, this standard. But if you call yourself a Christian, your boss and your supervisor, the people that oversee you, they are not a means to a paycheck. They are image bearers of the image of God. They are people whom you are to point to Jesus by the excellence of your service, by the excellence of your work. Your clients, your customers, the people that, that you depend on for receiving your paycheck, they are not a means to an end. Employers, this means your employees, are not a tool to get the work done that you need to get done. The people who work for you are, are image bearers of the image of God. You are there to serve them and to love them and to point them toward Jesus. This is the standard for Christians. We don't hold our non-Christian bosses to this standard. And it doesn't, it's not fair, right? It is not fair that we should consider ourselves as less than people who, who don't hold themselves to the same standard that we do. And really, honestly, this is where, where Christian faith needs the power of the Holy Spirit. This goes against every human instinct we have. We think, if I'm going to submit to this boss, he better be kind to me. As Christians, we don't have any expectation of that. In fact, we have the opposite expectation. We have the expectation that the goodness and beauty of our lives is going to make other people itch, and they're not going to know what to do and how to handle themselves. But, but our lives, so transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's going to be so outside of the normal that our bosses, they're just not, they're not going to know what to do. They're going to say, this crazy person that works here, that even when people aren't looking, they do the right thing. This, this is, I, I really believe that this requires the work of the Holy Spirit in us. 
It's not just working a little harder by, by your own strength. It's not just like keeping a, a, a piece of thread tied around your finger so that you remember to do good, right? It, it is the power of the Holy Spirit transforming you so that your instinct is to do what is right regardless of the circumstance. We, we just can't do it on our own. Uh, I know a lot of you are very good people, and you can do a lot of good on your own. Jesus wants to call you to a, a higher standard even than what you can accomplish on your own. He, he wants you to be, to be better <laughs> when, than you think you can be. He, he wants you to be so filled with his spirit that you do like, like he did. He, remember, he said, I only do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Je- Jesus doesn't want your heart to be divided between your will and his will. He wants you by the power of his spirit. It, and again, you cannot do this on your own. You must depend on God's presence in your life and power in your life. He wants you to, to do everything that is in the will of his father. And so the fruit of our work, the fruit of our work then isn't, uh, isn't a paycheck, um, but it's, it's actually a flourishing world. It's flourishing relationships. It's relationships that are built on trust and mutual respect, even in the workplace. Now, the second reminder that I think this passage gives us is uh, it kind of corrects me and it kind of chastens me. It, it reminds me that pastors are not the only ones who have their vocation tied up in their faith with, in the Lord. Uh, it, it turns out that every Christian person who works is called to bring glory and honor to God by the work you do regardless of where you work. God's call for each of us is to bring glory to him, first and foremost, by the way we work, by the, by the effort we show, by the diligence that, that we work with, whether people are looking or not. We are all called to, to work for God's glory. Uh, work and management our work life, it is all so that God would receive praise and glory and honor in this world. And so, let us not be subject to anything that is not Jesus. Let's not, let's not subject ourselves to any standard that isn't God's will in our lives. And if we, if we are willing to do that, then our work can bring praise and glory and honor to God. So I want to pray for you before you go to work to bring glory and honor to God this week. I want to pray for you. Would you stand? Uh, I'm sure that reading this passage and thinking about this for, for certain people reminds us of, of what's coming tomorrow. Maybe later today for some. Uh, work relationship that's maybe makes it feel like, man, why would, I, why would I go above and beyond? Why would I do what's right when they're not looking? Uh, maybe it reminds you of, of your own attitude 
showing up and, and uh, thinking, I'm just here to punch the clock to get that paycheck. Maybe it reminds you of, of the reality that first and foremost, that job is not what defines you. First and foremost, you are a child of God. You belong to him, and, and he should receive glory from everything you do. And so uh, I give you a few minutes to just pray and to reflect on, on work and life and, and to consider how the Lord would guide you in this week to come. Why don't we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as people, people who, because of your image in us, we, we work. We like to work, God. We thank you for that. And Lord, I know that in the diversity of our congregation, we have people at different stages in their, in their work life, some just starting out, some who, who have retired and, and work looks differently today than it did for the majority of their adult lives. And Lord, for each of us, I pray that you would just speak now as we take a moment to each of us in our hearts, reflect on the work that you've given us. May we, may we think now, Lord, with, with your spirit guiding us in the direction that you would take us this week to bring glory and honor to you. Lord, for my brothers and sisters this morning who, who recognize that they have, have considered work as a means to an end and who perhaps this morning need to consider work as an opportunity to bring you glory and honor, I pray that you would give them the grace this week to move beyond the desire for a paycheck and move toward a desire to honor you to bring glory to your name, Lord. For my brothers and sisters here this morning who, who upon reflection, have seen how they have considered other people they work with and people below them in the organizational chart as a means to the end, Lord, I pray that you would give them the power of your spirit to view your image, to see Jesus in everybody they come into contact with and especially those who work under them in their work. I pray, Lord, that you would give them the ability, give them, give them a heart of love for, for those who have, by the nature of life, by the nature of our own hearts, become less than human in their own sight. I pray, God, that you would be with each of us, as, as we go about the, the work that you've given us, we remember that it is a gift from you, from your hand, Lord. You provide everything for us. And so often, so much of what you provide for us is, is through the work that you've given us. And so, God, I pray that as we go into this blessing, which is a week to work, Lord, I pray that you would give us a renewed heart, a renewed attitude that we would seek to bring glory and honor to you in everything, God, in everything we do. Whether people are watching or not, Lord, help us to do all for your glory. And so, Lord, now I pray that you would go with us, that the power of your spirit would lead us to bring glory to you. We love you, Lord. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. May you go and bring glory to God this week. You are dismissed.